The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. From the manner in which the vacancy left by Jackson is provided for, it is inferred that a sacrifice is meant of the respect belonging to this government, either to the pride of the British government or to the feelings of those who have taken side with it against their own. On either supposition, it is necessary to counteract the ignoble purpose. You will accordingly find that on ascertaining the substitution of a charge to be an intentional degradation of the diplomatic intercourse on the part of Great Britain, it is deemed proper that no higher functionary should represent the United States at London. I sincerely wish, on every account, that the views of the British government in this instance may not be such as are denoted by appearances, or that, on finding the tendency of them, they may be changed. However, the fact may turn out, you will, of course, not lose sight of the expediency of mingling in every step you take as much of moderation and even of conciliation as can be justifiable, and will, in particular, if the present dispatches should find you in actual negotiation, be governed by the result of it in determining the question of your devolving your trust on a secretary of legation. President James Madison to U.S. Minister to Britain, William Pinckney, 23rd May, 1810. Starting in the Jefferson Presidency series, we've been talking for some time about the increasingly fractured relations between the United States and the United Kingdom in the latter part of the first decade of the 19th century. And the first years of Madison's presidency only found the situation getting worse. As noted in episode 4.14, after the brief disastrous tenure of British Minister to the U.S. Francis James Jackson and a formal request from the Madison administration for Jackson's recall, the Ministry of British Prime Minister Spencer Percival opted to rebuke the U.S. by not replacing Jackson with a full minister, but instead the lower diplomatic office of Chargé d'Affaires. As the letter from Madison to the top American diplomat in London that was our opening quote indicates, the administration received the message loud and clear and gave Pinckney the option to take his leave and return home if the British government hadn't changed its mind and entered into earnest negotiation. Meanwhile, the new British charge, John Philip Maurier, arrived in the U.S. at a time when, on both sides of the Atlantic, circumstances were shifting and, as described by historian William Masterson, quote, a four-year diplomatic logjam began to break up and the current of American nationalism gained momentum. Before I get into that, though, I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Sean from the American History Podcast for reading the excerpt from Madison's letter to Pinckney for our opening quote. Sean has invited me on his show a couple of times in the past, and likewise, in addition to recording opening quotes from time to time, Sean was my guest on the Seat at the Table episode on Samuel Dexter. It is always a pleasure to collaborate with him, and I'm grateful for all the support he's given presidencies over the years. As in this podcast, Sean does deep dives into various topics in American history, ranging from the early troubled relations between the U.S. and Mexico to World War II in the Pacific. As someone with a passion for the details of history, you can't go wrong by checking out the American History Podcast by going to theamericanhistorypodcast, that's all one word, dot com, or by searching for the American History Podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found. 
I'll also have a link to Sean's website on the source notes section for this episode on my website, which is Presidency's Podcast, all one word, dot com. There, you can also find information on how you can support the podcast, and I'd like to take the opportunity to send a special shout out to our patrons. Their support ensures that I'm able to offset the cost of editing services to get episodes out faster, as well as purchase the research materials that are needed to uncover all of the various elements that contributed to the complex history of the Madison presidency. Thanks so much to Matthew C., Michelle G., Jeremy, Ike, Matthew N., Joshua, Eric, Howard, Michael, Michelle, and Scott. If you'd like to join them as the Presidency's patron, just go to patreon.com presidencies and sign up. The various tiers have different benefits, but all patrons get access to an ad-free feed, as well as special updates about what's happening with the podcast. With that said, let's get back to the narrative. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. In our last episode, we got caught up on developments in Washington, D.C. as Madison worked to fill vacancies in the executive and judicial branches, Congress killed the Bank of the United States, and the president forced out Robert Smith as Secretary of State to be replaced by James Monroe. Before we can move forward with what was happening in the Madison administration in 1811, we need to back up a little bit and pick up on another thread from episode 4.14 to see what was happening with the British royal family as this will have an impact on what comes next in our narrative. In that episode, we discussed how British King George III had fallen back into his state of mental and emotional unrest, and pressure was put on the Percival Ministry to put forward a bill naming the Prince of Wales, also conveniently named George, as Prince Regent to rule in his father's stead during his time of impairment. This put the Prime Minister in a difficult spot, because the Prince of Wales was friendly with Percival's political opposition, and Percival's government was on shaky ground as it stood. Back in the day, William Pitt the Younger had been able to avoid naming Prince George as Prince Regent, but this time, it looked like there was no alternative. Despite a temporary recovery in mid-November 1810, by the end of the month, according to historian Saul David, quote, the king became feverish, his pulse rose above 100, and the straight waistcoat had to be reapplied. Meanwhile, the Prince of Wales was doing what he could 
to get on the good side of the Percival ministry and the Tories. When he received word of his father's illness, he secluded himself in his apartments at Windsor Castle and, quote, avoided all contact with opposition politicians. A contemporary noted that he, quote, was conducting himself with very unusual discretion. Rather than his usual political contacts, Prince George began discussions with ministers of Percival's cabinet and towards the end of 1810, quote, began to sound out the reaction of ministers to a regency. On December 19th, Prime Minister Percival wrote to the Prince of Wales to notify him, quote, that the government intended to introduce a regency bill with restrictions similar to those proposed in 1789 during the last regency crisis. But unlike Pitt's bill, which had imposed no time limit, the new restrictions would apply for just one year. This, however, was not good enough for Prince George, and he wrote back that evening advocating for an unrestricted regency. For added measure, he gathered all six of his brothers, as well as his cousin, the Duke of Gloucester, to discuss the situation, and all of them signed a letter, quote, calling for the prince to be appointed regent without restrictions. For the next few weeks, the debate raged in Parliament, and the political back and forth carried on with Tories supporting Percival's restricted regency bill and Whigs in opposition to, quote, any restriction of the regent's power. Finally, though, on January 8, 1811, both Houses of Parliament passed resolutions for a restricted regency and word was sent to the Prince of Wales. On January 11th, Prince George's reply was received by Parliament. He would accept the regency, though he continued to object to the restrictions placed on it. Meanwhile, bitter over the Percival ministry not being amenable to his being regent without restrictions, Prince George reached out to Whig leaders Lord Grenville and the Earl Grey about the idea of forming a Whig government. Despite his earlier close relations with the Whigs, though, the Prince Regent was not able to come to an agreement with the two over forming a new government, though he continued to keep alive the possibility. With the King showing signs of improvement, however, Prince George realized that his regency was on shaky ground, and thus, on February 4th, Prime Minister Percival received a letter from the Prince Regent, quote, informing him that he would remain in office. The sole reason given was the irresistible impulse of filial duty which caused him to dread that any act of the regent might in the smallest degree have the effect of interfering with the progress of his sovereign's recovery. Thus, these two men, who were for different reasons in vulnerable positions politically, found themselves aligned and dependent on one another for their continuance in power. So why is this important in a podcast on U.S. presidential history, you ask? Because simultaneous to these developments— William Pinckney was making his final attempt to bring the Percival ministry to the negotiating table. With news of the letter from the French foreign minister, the Duc de Cador, that the French government was willing to reverse its decrees impacting American shipping if the U.S. would either secure a repeal of the restrictive British orders in council or impose non-intercourse with Britain, Pinckney approached the British government about opening up discussions on the latter course of action. However, British Foreign Secretary Lord Wellesley refused, quote, to accept the Cador letter as bona fide, and thus would not act. Now, we should note that, as we discussed back in episode 4.14, as there was a prevalent anti-U.S. sentiment in British parliamentary circles at the time, given the precarious state of the Percival ministry, it wouldn't do to appear too accommodating. 
Pinckney's frustration is likewise understandable, though. And thus, in the spring of 1811, Pinckney utilized the latitude that had been granted to him by President Madison in his letter of the year prior and abruptly announced his intentions to return to the U.S. Wellesley was taken aback by this development and quickly decided that he needed to take action to avoid a full rupture in Anglo-American relations. 48 hours after Pinckney's announcement that he was leaving his post, Wellesley announced that a new British minister to the U.S. would be named. The person who would be appointed to this post was Augustus Foster. Foster was born in December 1780 to Irish MP John Thomas Foster and Elizabeth Hervey Foster. As described by Masterson, Elizabeth was, quote, one of the most colorful women in the lurid chronicle of Georgian morals, and the couple separated while Augustus and his brother George were still quite young. The boys were taken in by their grandfather, a clergyman, and they would remain in his care until the death of their father in 1796. After John's death, Elizabeth returned from travels on the European continent to be reunited with her sons. After graduating from Christ Church, Oxford, Augustus studied in Weimar and Drahada and traveled to Greece, the Ottoman Empire, and Sweden. After a brief tenure in the army, Augustus decided to go into the diplomatic corps and was soon interacting with the likes of Napoleon and our old friend Talleyrand. He served for a time in Naples before he was dispatched to the U.S. in late 1804 to serve in the diplomatic mission of then-British minister to the U.S., Anthony Mary. Foster described the American capital as, quote, a sad distance from all the civilized world. And American society is, quote, the most motley vulgars the world has ever known. But still, he remained in Washington even after Mary left his post and would serve under David Erskine for a couple of years before returning to Europe in March 1808. Finally, in 1811, he was tapped to be the new British minister in Washington. As described by Masterson, quote, the appointment did not mean that Britain was prepared for a new approach to mutual problems, but it did indicate that the Percival ministry felt toward America less hostility than petulance. America was thought to be flattered by being sent a nobleman as minister, and Foster's somewhat tenuous relationship to the peerage was considered at least as important as his prior service in America. This 33-year-old man being sent to the U.S. by his government was described by Masterson as, quote, good-humored, vain, indolent, and self-assured in his main interest, which was society. His snobbishness was derived from an adoring mother and aristocratic relations, but he escaped arrogance by a whimsical humor, and his politeness was disarming. He represented the triumph of natural shallowness over privilege, education, travel, and experience. Francis Jackson, in remarking on his replacement to the diplomatic mission to Washington, described Foster as follows, quote, A very gentlemanlike young man, quite equal to doing nothing, which is now the best possible policy. Not necessarily a ringing endorsement, but we shall see as time goes on whether Foster, in fact, does nothing or is able to make any headway in resolving the issues between the U.S. and Great Britain. Before Foster was able to get to Washington, though, an incident happened which ramped up the tension between the two nations once more. As discussed last episode, James Monroe assuming the office of Secretary of State on April 6, 1811, was meant to represent a reset in the administration's trajectory. As described by historian Bradford Perkins, quote, 
Some Federalists thought it showed that Madison, recognizing his errors, had decided to adopt a policy more favorable to England. Others, more cynical, explained the appointment as a political bribe to eliminate Monroe as presidential candidate in 1812, and the British charge Maurier went even further when he combined with this a suggestion that sheer economic necessity had influenced Monroe. While, as we'll learn more about when we become better acquainted with Monroe, he often faced difficulties in making his personal finances work out, my guess is, and grains of salt at the ready, dear listeners, that Monroe was more motivated by political necessity. As discussed in episode 3.35, Monroe and Pinckney had negotiated a treaty with the British in 1806 while serving in London, which President Jefferson and then-Secretary of State Madison deemed inadequate and didn't even send to the Senate for a vote. For someone who had been involved in the negotiation of the widely successful Louisiana Purchase Treaty just three years prior, Monroe saw the rejection of the treaty with the British as a big rebuke by his most prominent political allies. Upon his return to the U.S., Representative John Randolph of Roanoke's attempt to push Monroe ahead as Jefferson's successor in the presidential election of 1808 meant that, in addition to being on the losing end of that prospect, Monroe had been billed as a rival to the sitting president. If he was to end up with a political future on the national stage, this was the best approach for Monroe. Likewise, for Madison, this was a reset. After a turbulent first couple of years of his presidency, Monroe brought a new approach to foreign relations. As someone who had already dealt with the major European powers, he brought insight and perspective that his predecessor couldn't. They would need his expertise sooner than either likely expected, as the British and the U.S. were about to square off on the high seas. The USS President had been in Annapolis, Maryland in April and early May 1811 so that Commodore John Rogers could visit his family in the area. While there, Rogers learned that the HMS Guerriere had impressed numerous American sailors from merchant ships off the coast of New York recently. Thus, Rogers readied his ship and set sail bound up the coast. On the afternoon of May 16th, the lookout on the President reported seeing a ship in the distance and after, quote, hoisting unrecognizable signals and receiving no answer, she wore and ran south. The president set off in chase and continued its pursuit as the sun set. Commodore Rogers thought that the ship may be the Guerriere and pushed the pursuit. When the president got within 100 yards of the ship around 8.15 p.m., as described by historian Ian Toll, quote, Rogers lifted his speaking trumpet and bellowed, What ship is that? Toll goes on to describe that, quote, what followed was the familiar nocturnal game of nerves in which each commander demanded to know the name of the unknown ship before giving the name of his own. Unfortunately for all involved, as Rogers was engaged in the back and forth, a shot was fired and, quote, both vessels opened a furious barrage of cannon and musket fire. In the midst of the exchange, Rogers realized that the opposing vessel was not the frigate Guerriere. The British ship suffered heavily under the president's barrage, and within 15 minutes, Rogers ordered a ceasefire so that he could try to communicate with the captain of the other vessel. Unfortunately, due to the wind, they couldn't hear one another across the water, so Rogers ordered the president, quote, hove to at a safe distance to repair the modest damage she had sustained in her rigging. At daybreak, they were able to see that the British ship was a 20-gun corvette 
dubbed the Little Belt. As described by Toll, quote, The Little Belt had suffered badly, with her hull pierced in several places between wind and water, her sails and rigging cut to pieces, and her starboard pump destroyed. Nine of her men were killed and 23 wounded, several of them mortally. Commodore Rogers sent word to the commander of the Little Belt, Captain Arthur Bingham, offering assistance, but Bingham replied, quote, that he had on board all the necessary requisites to repair the damages sufficiently to enable him to return to Halifax. Though the Little Belt was nearly lost due to hitting a large gale storm a couple of days later, they were able to get back safely to Nova Scotia. The fallout from the Little Belt affair, however, would resonate for a while afterwards. Commodore Rogers, in his official report to the Navy Department, requested, quote, a court of inquiry examine his conduct in the engagement. However, Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton replied on May 28, 1811, urging Rogers to take the president back out to sea and asserting that he should, quote, prepare for a trial much more serious than that to which you have been invited. For I am certain that the chastisement which you have very properly inflicted will cause you to be marked for British vengeance. Since his arrival in September 1810, British Chargé d'Affaires in Washington, D.C., John Philip Maurier, had already spent his brief tenure complaining to the administration, first about Madison's proclamation of November 2nd that trade was being restored with France in light of the Cador letter, as discussed in episode 4.14, then about the decision to take control of West Florida, as discussed in episode 4.13. Thus, you can imagine his reaction to the news of the USS President attacking the HMS Little Belt. However, before we discuss the British response to the Little Belt matter, let's turn back to what was going on with those first two points of contention, for there were some updates in those that made the Little Belt news especially egregious. Starting first with West Florida, as directed by President Madison, Orleans Territorial Governor William C.C. Claiborne after taking control of Baton Rouge on December 10, 1810, as described in episode 4.13, began making plans to consolidate American control over this new territory. With the force that he had pulled together, Claiborne spent the next few days working to, quote, extend American jurisdiction to the Pearl River and shortly afterward to the Pascagoula River. As we discussed previously, Claiborne's orders had been specific in that he was not to engage with Spanish military forces, so far the time being, that meant that the Spanish garrison at Mobile was safe. Though, as the government back in Washington learned that month, the Spanish governor in Pensacola, Vicente Folch, was concerned about the possibility of revolt in Mobile. As described by historian James Cusick, quote, the loss of Baton Rouge had apparently shaken the Spanish governor's confidence that he could defend his province. And Folch was making overtures to various American officials in the area, quote, proposing to treat for the delivery of the province to the U.S. By December 24th, Claiborne was able to proudly write to President Madison and Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, quote, that the occupation of West Florida was almost complete, at least the portion west of Mobile, and that it had been accomplished on a tight budget of at most $1,800. With that done, Claiborne was able to turn his mind to political appointments in the area, which would be to his benefit, as West Florida had a larger Anglo-American population than the rest of the Orleans Territory. From his first day of assuming office back in 1803, 
Claiborne had found the Creole elites in the area mostly opposed him. But now, he had the potential to not only win over leaders in West Florida, but also have more officials on his side that could help to counteract Creole political opposition. Even as these positive reports started rolling into Washington, the Madison administration had already turned its mind to another matter. In mid-January 1811, President Madison met with George Matthews, former governor of Georgia. In a quick side note, this is not Matthews' first mention in this podcast as he got title billing in episode 1.24. However, in this meeting with Madison, Matthews had matters other than Georgia to discuss with the chief executive. For Matthews had intelligence from a recent visit to East Florida that indicated that this province may be ripe for an orchestrated rebellion which would deliver it into American hands along the same lines as what happened in West Florida. Matthews informed the president that he had guarantees from five prominent leaders in East Florida that they would help to overthrow the Spanish authority there and hand over the province to the U.S. as they would rather be ruled by the Americans than the French and were concerned that, given the instability of the Regency government in Cadiz, there was a strong possibility that Napoleon might triumph and take over the Spanish colonial holdings as well as the Iberian Peninsula. With the information that Matthews was able to provide, Madison and his administration worked behind the scenes to get key leaders in Congress on board. And on January 15, 1811, the Senate and the House of Representatives approved, quote, a joint resolution endorsing the United States' right to take temporary possession of the Floridas under certain contingencies. I should mention that this bill had been crafted by Democratic-Republican Senator from Kentucky Henry Clay, who was quickly making a name for himself in the Capitol only a year after taking office. Now, this bill would be kept secret from the public, as Congress also, quote, prohibited its publication as it was authorizing it. But this would set off a new chain of events. With this authority granted, President Madison then appointed George Matthews and Colonel John McKee as U.S. commissioners with, quote, authority to settle Spanish debts and to draw on military forces along the frontier, powers that Madison and Matthews had discussed in their conference, and sent them on their way south to see what could be done in East Florida. We'll leave this matter here for now and turn our attention to the matter of the Cador letter and the Madison administration's response, which was developing simultaneously as the plotting around the Floridas. A week after Madison's November 2nd proclamation, he received more detailed reports from the outgoing U.S. Minister to France, John Armstrong, with more details on his letters with the French foreign minister, the Duc de Cadoua. As the president and his cabinet read these reports, they learned that the French government was not, in fact, meeting American demands and would not release American vessels that they had captured prior to November 1st. As noted by Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, Had Madison known this in October, he would probably have withheld the proclamation, but a week after its issuance, it seemed unwise to rescind it. The president still had three months, though, before he had to figure out whether or not to impose non-intercourse on Great Britain, as was the threat issued in the proclamation. It was still possible that they could use this illusion of coming to terms with France to bring Britain around to concessions. Week after week went by, however, without any favorable news from either London or Paris. 
and pro-administration Democratic Republicans in Congress got nervous. Technically, Macon's Bill No. 2 did not require the president to seek legislative approval to reimpose non-intercourse on the nation still in dispute if the conditions of coming to terms were met by the other party. However, it couldn't be argued that the French had met the American demands, and thus the question began to be asked, not just by opponents of the Madison administration, but its friends as well, whether the president would be justified in imposing non-intercourse on Britain when the three-month deadline ran out. Thus, Representative John Wales Epps, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, and Jefferson's son-in-law by his late daughter Maria, put forward a bill to impose non-intercourse with the United Kingdom, an obvious face-saving measure to give the Madison administration cover. However, as a new French minister to the U.S. was expected at any time to replace Louis-Marie Thoreau, and it was hoped that this new minister might bring more favorable news, which would make the passage of the Epps bill a moot point. The Epps non-intercourse bill was put on hold for the time being. Meanwhile, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, and no fan of the administration, put forward a resolution to repeal Macon's Bill No. 2 entirely. Though it was defeated, for the Democratic-Republicans to hold two-thirds of the seats in the House, it was only defeated by a vote of 67 against to 45 for, a sign of the growing power of the anti-administration faction of the party. When Louis Sirier arrived three weeks after the Epps bill was laid aside, however, the pro-administration faction found themselves sorely disappointed. The new French minister was described as being, quote, as parsimonious as his master is voracious. He, i.e. Sirier, had not condescended to extend one particle, not one pinch of comfort, to the administration. Thus, on February 28, 1811, the Epps bill was pushed through the House, with the Senate quickly approving and sending it on to Madison, who signed without hesitation. Thus, the closing of the 11th United States Congress put the Madison administration in an even more difficult position from which to negotiate and put the nation back into a state of non-intercourse with its largest trading partner. After seven weeks at sea, this, dear friends, is the situation that Augustus Foster arrived to when he stepped foot on American soil once more in Annapolis, Maryland. Coincidentally, the man who had been the American Point person in London for the past few years, William Pinckney, arrived in Annapolis from England on another ship on the same day as Foster, and the two, quote, exchanged ceremonial messages. For Pinckney, it was time to head home. For Foster, it was time to get to work. On June 30th, he arrived in Washington, D.C., and on July 2nd, 1811, Secretary of State Monroe escorted Foster, British Charge Mortier, and Secretary of the British Legation, Anthony Baker, to the President's house. Longtime listeners of the podcast, our listeners of the recent two-part episode of Madison's tenure as Secretary of State may recall that, in 1803, one of Foster's predecessors, Anthony Mary, had been received by then-President Jefferson in a housecoat and slippers. Madison, having been present for the kerfuffle that ensued with that, instead opted to be, quote, formally dressed in black coat, stockings, and buckle shoes his powdered hair gathered in a small pigtail in order to receive Foster. Thus, their relationship 
at least began on a cordial note. But both sides knew that the gap between them was quite wide, and the Little Belt matter had only made it wider. We'll leave the British situation there for now, for there are developments happening to the Northwest that we need to check in on. When we last left Shawnee Chief Tecumseh and Indiana Territorial Governor William Henry Harrison at the end of episode 4.12, they were wrapping up an unsuccessful conference at Vincennes where both men were beginning to feel that war between their peoples was inevitable. Thus, upon leaving the white town, Tecumseh devoted a good portion of his energies over the next year to bringing together disparate native nations into a confederacy. As noted by historian John Sugden, quote, Working within such diversity of language, predicament, and purpose, Tecumseh faced greater difficulties than those of any American or European statesman. Yet he would not be deterred. Tecumseh recruited discreetly, avoiding whites who could report his activities and urging secrecy upon Indian audiences. Consequently, we have little information about his tours. We know that Tecumseh traveled to the North and the West after his conference with Harrison, but it seems that a planned tour to the South was deferred, for he had another important ally to secure. On November 12, 1810, Tecumseh, along with 170 others, composed members of the Ottawa, Potawatomi, Sauk, Shawnee, and Winnebago Nations, arrived at Fort Malden a British stronghold just downriver from Detroit at Amherstburg in modern-day Ontario. As we know in episode 4.12, the directive that British agents in North America had been instructed to follow was to cultivate the friendship and support of Native nations, though walking a line to not openly advocate for attacks on American citizens or military forces. Officials in Canada, however, were growing concerned that Native forces, including those led by Tecumseh, may launch an attack that would pull the British into a war that it didn't necessarily want or was prepared to engage in. It was to the point that the Governor-General of Canada, Sir James Craig, sent word to British Chargé d'Affaires John Philip Morier in Washington, urging that he should warn the American government that Native nations were planning to attack them in all-out war. Though Tecumseh found the British cool to his overtures at the conference at Fort Malden, it did not deter him. The new year found Tecumseh riding first west, then east once more, to try to secure what was, at that point, tenuous support for his plans. By late June, he was back home at the settlement that had been dubbed Prophetstown by white settlers. Though he was hard at work making preparations to travel south to bring those native nations into the Confederacy, Tecumseh found himself having to deal with a situation that was developing to the west. In May 1811, a member of the ba Jodche ishi Nation, more popularly known in the present day as the Iowa, proclaimed in St. Louis that, quote, the time is drawing near when the murder is to begin, and all the Indians that will not join are to die with the whites. The next month, several native attacks on white settlers were carried out in the Illinois Territory, and the governor, Ninian Edwards, mobilized militia forces to patrol. Meanwhile, These events to the West had Governor Harrison in the Indiana Territory on edge, and in June, he refused to allow Native peoples from Prophetstown to enter Vincennes, quote, to have weapons repaired, and wrote a letter to Tecumseh accusing him of, quote-unquote, plotting war. Given that his situation was still rather tenuous, 
Tecumseh knew that he had to alleviate Harrison's fears in order to prevent him from potentially launching a preemptive attack. Thus, on July 27, 1811, Tecumseh arrived at Vincennes once more, accompanied by a group of around 300, which included 270 warriors and approximately 30 women and children. As you can imagine, and as described by Sugden, quote, the town was on full alert. Gunpowder was concentrated under a guard, and the regulars from Fort Knox, about 80 dragoons, and the militia were on duty. The day of Tecumseh's arrival, Harrison, wearing a fringed hunting shirt, reviewed his militia near 800 strong. The air was tense as the two men, both accompanied by a sizable force, the 180 native peoples armed with, quote, tomahawks, clubs, knives, and bows and arrows, but no firearms and the 80 American Dragoons, quote, without rifles or muskets, but with pistols stuffed into their belts and swords, gathered in an arbor about a mile from the town for their conference. On the second day of the conference, Tecumseh made a terrible mistake while delivering a speech. This trip to Vincennes was not the end of the journey for Tecumseh and his 300 traveling companions. Rather, it was just the first stop he and his party would proceed from here to a tour of the South to engage with Native nations in that area, and Tecumseh revealed these plans to Harrison and the other Americans in attendance. From Tecumseh's own mouth, they learned that the great Shawnee chief was leaving the area indefinitely with the 270 warriors in his party. Further, he shared, quote, that a number of Indians, Wyandots and Iroquois, were coming to settle at Prophetstown that fall that would go on to, quote, occupy as a hunting ground lands that were involved in the disputed Treaty of Fort Wayne of 1809. Though Tecumseh's brother, Tenskwatawa, known more commonly to the white settlers as the Prophet, was left in charge in Prophetstown and had been a major leader in the Native Confederacy movement, Harrison knew at this point that Tecumseh, quote, was really the efficient man the Moses of the family. He was described by all as a bold, active, sensible man, daring in the extreme and capable of any undertaking. Now, he was removing himself from the field and leaving a lesser leader in charge. Not only was this a strategic blunder in revealing that the force in Prophetstown was severely weakened, but Tecumseh also gave Harrison motivation to launch a preemptive attack to prevent the settlement of a new large group of native peoples in lands that Harrison felt were rightfully American as he himself had forced through the treaty that had supposedly acquired those lands. This would turn out to be the only result to come out of the Vincennes Conference of 1811, for when Tecumseh and his party left on August 5th bound south, nothing had been resolved diplomatically. Historian Robert Owens describes how affairs in the West were being interpreted by the administration in Washington as follows. Quote, Secretary of War William Eustace tried to keep informed about the frontier situation, but as 1811 wore on, he gave Harrison more and more leeway in deciding how best to handle the profit. Eustace did not covet a war in Indiana, but he did not want to take responsibility for hindering the citizens' ability to defend themselves either. He left that decision up to Harrison. After Tecumseh's departure, 
Harrison learned that Secretary Eustace had sent orders for the 4th Regiment to head to Indiana from Pittsburgh, and Harrison traveled to Jeffersonville on the Ohio River to meet them. He soon received word of their delay due to insufficient supply lines, and as the Ohio River's levels were dropping, the territorial governor knew the delays may continue. Thus, he used the opportunity to review nearby militias and travel to Louisville, Kentucky, where he received word that the state's attorney general, Colonel Joseph Hamilton Davies, was putting together a volunteer force to add to the effort. On September 3rd, the 4th Regiment arrived, but Harrison was disappointed that it had dwindled to 400 battle-ready troops, diminished by desertion and sickness in the journey downriver. No matter. Harrison had authorized the mobilization of the territory's entire militia and thus assembled a force of around 1,000 under his command. Harrison worked with his assembled force over the next few weeks, and on September 26th, they began their march towards Prophetstown. Tenskwatawa and those remaining in Prophetstown had heard word of Harrison's preparations, and it confirmed fears that the Prophet and his brother had had prior to Tecumseh's departure. When they had discussed matters before the party left for the South, the Shawnee brothers had agreed that Tenskwatawa should avoid engaging in conflict with the Americans. However, now that Tenskwatawa was on his own, and an American force was coming together to march on Prophetstown, the Prophet had to reconsider what options remained. While he did send warriors to Vincennes with messages of peace and goodwill towards the Americans, Tenskwatawa, as his brother had done previously, hedged his bets and at the same time sent messages requesting aid from other native nations nearby as well as weapons from the British. Once Harrison's force started marching and constructed Fort Harrison at the site of present-day Terre Haute, Indiana, the options available to Tenskwatawa dwindled. As described by Tenskwatawa's biographer R. David Edmonds, quote, For Tenskwatawa, the die was cast. If he agreed to Harrison's demands, or if he retreated, he would lose face. Moreover, if the Americans captured Prophetstown, he would be forced to surrender the large stores of food and ammunition he finally had been able to accumulate. Tecumseh's preparations were unfinished, and he had urged caution, but the Prophet was determined to make a stand. On the American side, the final potential hurdle for Harrison was removed as he received new instructions from Secretary Eustace while en route that, quote, the course to be pursued with the prophet must depend in a great measure on his conduct. You will approach and order him to disperse, which he may be permitted to do on condition of satisfactory assurances. If he neglects or refuses, he will be attacked and compelled to it by the force under your command. His adherents should be informed that, in case they shall hereafter form any combination of a hostile nature, they will be driven beyond the great waters. While construction on Fort Harrison was underway, Tenskwatawa dispatched a small party to the area, quote, to ambush any soldiers who wandered into the woods. As the troops under Harrison's command were focused on completing the fortifications, they had little reason to wander far from the site. So the party from Prophetstown, quote, fired on the sentries on the evening of October 10th, wounding only one soldier but spreading alarm throughout the camp. Still, Harrison did make one final attempt to bring about a peaceful resolution. At the end of the month, he dispatched a, quote, party of friendly Miamis to Prophetstown to meet with Tenskwatawa 
and present Harrison's demands. Naturally, the prophet paid this little mind. Thus, on October 29th, Harrison led his force away from Fort Harrison up the Wabash River. By November 6th, they'd arrived just about a mile from Prophetstown. Upon receiving news that Harrison and his force were in the area, Tenskwatawa sent a small group of warriors to meet with Harrison under a flag of truce. They claimed that the party of Miamis that had come to their village at Harrison's behest had been sent back with a message that the prophet was willing to come to terms. Thus, the native party suggested that Harrison and his troops set up an encampment and rest for the evening, and the two sides could meet the next day to discuss Harrison's demands. The native people suggested that the Americans establish their camp along Burnett's Creek, described by Edmonds as, quote, a small stream emptying into the Wabash about two miles downstream from Prophetstown. Harrison agreed and ordered the camp to be set up. Cleves described the campsite as, quote, a 10-acre piece of ground shaped like a blunt flat iron, rising several feet above the wet prairie and bordered on two sides by woods and the creek, on the short ends by a marshy prairie and thickets. Now, here's where we arrive at an odd place in this history. Here Harrison was leading a force up to what he had asserted was the headquarters of a hostile native force, a base of operations that he was now a mile away from. Yet, he did not order the camp to be properly fortified. Harrison biographer Freeman Cleves argues that this was because, quote, an attack was not anticipated. But historian Robert Owens describes that, quote, Curiously, Harrison did not fortify his camp, but left only pickets, partially silhouetted by the great campfires that blazed against the cold drizzle. Edmonds, meanwhile, describes that Harrison, quote, ordered his soldiers to sleep at their post that night, weapons primed and ready. Meanwhile, sentries were sent out in all directions to guard against the surprise attack and deemed this as, quote, all necessary precautions, but also notes, like Cleves, that Harrison, quote, doubted that the Indians would attack his camp. Since they had not tried to ambush him en route to Fort Harrison, he believed that the prophet and his followers were too intimidated to strike the first blow. He assumed, too, that the Indians would not choose to fight at night because the warriors feared the darkness might assist a well-disciplined and highly trained body of troops. Besides, one more round of negotiations would serve as proof that he had given the prophet every chance for a peaceful resolution before he used the force at his disposal to end the threat of Prophetstown once and for all. While I dismiss that Harrison's preparations were quote-unquote all necessary precautions as Edmonds described, I do think that Edmonds points out a probable reason that defensive measures were so lax that night. Harrison was arrogant enough to think that the native forces would never dare to carry out a sneak attack overnight against his command. As we described in episode 4.12, Harrison was more used to native leaders who would quickly accede to his demands. To date, Tecumseh had been the only native leader to truly stand up to Harrison and hold his ground, and Tecumseh was hundreds of miles away. However, Harrison had not factored in that his actions in bringing this military force to the front door of Prophetstown had also backed the native peoples into a corner. In the same token as Harrison and the Americans, Tenskwatawa and the native peoples of Prophetstown held out little hope that the negotiations would go anywhere. And why would Harrison march a force of nearly 1,000 soldiers this far 
if he didn't intend to use it. Their only chance was to carry out a sneak attack before the conference began. Tenskwatawa thus gathered the warriors overnight and leaned into his role as the spiritual leader in order to bolster the morale of the native force. As described by Edmonds, quote, Wearing a necklace of deer hooves and carrying strings of his sacred beans, he, Tenskwatawa, exhorted his followers to attack the Americans. Assuring them that the Master of Life had provided him with medicine to gain a great victory over their enemies, the prophet promised he would make them invulnerable to the long knives, i.e. the Americans. He would send rain and hail to dampen the Americans' powder, but the weapons of his warriors would not be affected. They had to attack the Americans before the end of the night as, quote, in the darkness, his medicine would spread confusion in the American ranks and many would fall to the ground in a stupor. The same darkness would hide the warriors and blind the soldiers while he would provide light like the noontide sun to guide the Indians. Moreover, the warriors must kill Harrison. The master of life had demanded that the governor should die for if he lived, the long knives could never be defeated. The ritual done, the native force, composed of around 560 to 700 individuals from eight native nations, made preparations to attack the American camp two hours before dawn. At the camp on Burnett's Creek, a few soldiers were rousing themselves, quote, to rekindle the fires and warm themselves, and Harrison himself was putting on his boots when, all of a sudden, quote, a rifle shot rang out from the northwestern corner of the camp. A party of native warriors had been working to penetrate the American lines undetected, but were discovered by a sentry on picket duty. The camp was immediately roused and tried to gather themselves as the native force, realizing that they had been discovered, rushed the encampment with, quote, an ear-splitting yell, hoping to take advantage of the chaos in order to carry out their mission. Native bullets and arrows shot through the air as Harrison scrambled to find a horse to mount so that he could direct his troops. His horse had escaped in the melee, so he was forced to don a black stallion. This change of plans may have saved his life, for a small party of native warriors had, quote, penetrated to the interior of the camp and attempted to attack the officers in their tents, and, quote, two warriors who had escaped notice and who were on the hunt for Harrison mistook a colonel riding a white horse for Harrison and shot him dead. The warriors who had managed to penetrate the lines were quickly, quote, shot down by American troops, including the two who had killed the colonel. Harrison continued to rally his forces, and though they were making little headway, they, quote, were not broken. As described by Edmonds, quote, convinced that victory would soon be theirs, the Indians fought with a dogged tenacity, and the battle raged on. But as dawn broke over the Wabash, they began to withdraw. In response, Harrison rallied his forces and ordered bayonet charges against those warriors still remaining opposite his flanks. As the Americans advanced, the warriors retreated into the marshes. With the native forces on the run, Harrison and his men, in all likelihood, let out a sigh of relief as they realized that the conflict that would come to be known as the Battle of Tippecanoe was finished, and they were the victors, though it had been a hard-won victory. From a force of around 1,000, around 66 to 68 people, please note the numbers that I've seen vary, under Harrison's command, died in the battle, 
and the officers' corps of the American force was disproportionately amongst the dead versus the percentage of common soldiers. Many of the officers killed had been men that Harrison had known quite well, including the Attorney General of Kentucky, Joseph Hamilton Davis. Adding to the casualty list the wounded, around a fifth of Harrison's force was no longer in fighting condition after the battle. Meanwhile, it's estimated that the native force lost around 50 men, though naturally, we have no way of knowing for certain. What we do know is that, though Tenskwatawa took no part in the action, but rather watched and offered incantations to protect the warriors, when the native force returned to Prophetstown that morning and reported their defeat, the prophet was attacked by the native peoples for his lies of invulnerability and the failure of the Americans' weapons, and so on and so forth. Tenskwatawa defended himself by saying that the problem was, quote, his wife, for she had failed to inform him that she was having her menstrual period and had, quote, handled sacred things, though everyone knew a woman should not do so while in such a state. Yes, that's right, dear listener. It was the, quote unquote, unclean woman that was the problem, not him. I know you can't see my eye roll, but just know it's there. But I digress. While the native peoples didn't kill him as Tenskwatel had feared they were ready to do, so too was his time as a viable leader at an end. When the prophet asked them to regroup, they instead gathered up what they could and abandoned Prophetstown. After taking a day to tend to their wounded and properly fortifying the camp, better late than never, eh? On November 8th, American forces marched into Prophetstown to find it deserted. The only resident remaining was an old woman who had been too infirm to flee. The retreat had been so rapid that tons of stores had been left behind, so Harrison ordered his troops to take what provisions they could. They also discovered some imported rifles and, quote, an ample supply of the best British glazed powder, providing evidence to the charge that the British were arming native peoples against the Americans. The American force put the torch to most of the buildings in the town, as well as many of the remaining stores that had been abandoned and Harrison's force couldn't carry out, though it does seem like they made provisions for the old woman to be able to survive. They left her to tend to a mortally wounded Potawatomi warrior that they had come across and left them with directions, quote, to inform any returning tribesmen that if they now would abandon the prophet, the government would treat them as friends. The next day, On November 9th, Harrison ordered his troops to break camp, and they began the journey back down the Wabash River, stationing fresh troops at Fort Harrison and Fort Knox before, on November 18th, arriving back in Vincennes to quote, a throng of anxiously waiting citizens. We'll discuss more of the ramifications of the Battle of Tippecanoe in future episodes, but as you can imagine, this was a pivotal moment in the history of the Old Northwest for Native and American residents alike. For now, though, our time together is drawing to a close. Thanks again to Sean of the American History Podcast for recording the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out the American History Podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. Thanks also to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian services, just go to Your Podcast Pal, that's all one word, dot com for more information. 
Special thanks to the Itinerant Band for their allowing us to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. They're available on the standard music apps, or you can check out my website for a link for more information about the band and their upcoming performances. That can be found at Presidency Podcast, again, all one word, dot com. The website is where you can also find sources used for this episode, past episodes, and links to more information about all of the U.S. presidents. If you don't already, be sure to follow me on social media. I'm available on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post as Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out at Presidencies Podcast, that's right, all one word, at gmail.com. Last but certainly not least, I want to thank you for listening. Presidency's reached its sixth anniversary this month, January 2023, as of this recording, and I'm as excited, if not more so, than I was launching my first episode about what we've got in store. When I began the podcast, I had no clue if anyone would listen at all. But since that time, I've been joined in this journey by so many amazing friends and podcasting colleagues. I look forward to seeing what lies on our path through the annals of presidential history in the year to come, and I hope you're excited about journeying down this path with me. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.